Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin, and this is It's Who You Know, the podcast. My guest today is Rabbi Sid Shores, who's the creator and director of the new project, Kenisa, Communities of Meaning Network and runs a two-year fellowship for rabbis, the Clergy Leadership Incubator. Rabbi Sid founded and led Panim, the Institute for Jewish Leadership and Values, for over 21 years, and is the author of several books, including Judaism and Justice, The Jewish Passion to Repair the World, and Jewish Megatrends, Charting the Course of the American Jewish Future. You can read more about Rabbi Sid's extensive biography on our website. But what made me interested in bringing him on the program today was not only have I heard of his work and read his many of his books and articles, knowing him as a Jewish thought leader very prominently His name has also been coming up a lot in my interviews as somebody who has mentored a lot of other Jewish professionals in their work and helped provide some meaning and guidance in that as well. What we'll talk about today is his new project and his own journey as well. So welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. I'd love to just begin to hear a little bit about how you came to be an author of so many wonderful books and articles and now into your new project. Well, the place I would begin is I oftentimes describe myself as having been a reluctant rabbi, by which I mean I wasn't sure I wanted to become a rabbi. I was raised with a very strong Jewish background and describe myself as a shul kid growing up. I mean, I went to synagogue every Shabbat with my dad, and my first job in the Jewish world was running the junior congregation at my conservative synagogue on Long Island when I was in 10th grade and getting $25 every Shabbat. So it's not like I'm new to the Jewish world, but having grown up in a synagogue and working my way through college, running a series of youth groups and Jewish summer camp, I never quite saw myself as a rabbi, and I had a hard time finding rabbis who, for me, were role models. The fact is, as I got to the end of my college career and pretty much clear that I wanted to go to law school and enter into a career in politics, I had this hesitation because I thought about how many smart college graduates go to law school and then become lawyers and kind of disappear. And the reality is I quite loved the work I was doing in the Jewish world and had enough arrogance, I'll say, maybe chutzpah, a little holy chutzpah, mm-hmm. to believe that I could do it better than other people had done it before. So it was on that kind of that gamble that I decided to apply for rabbinical school. And that, you know, started me on a career which I've never regretted. I never looked back. In fact, having been in the rabbin now for almost 35 years, I really feel fortunate every day to have the opportunity to work because I've been able to do it in so many different ways. I've stopped counting, but somewhere on my sixth or seventh career now as a rabbi, finding different ways to do it. I think the best way to explain how some of my writing came about is that soon after I graduated the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, which is located in Philadelphia, I was invited to teach a course there called Creating Alternative Community. The reason I was invited to teach the course is because I started as a student rabbi at a congregation right outside of Philadelphia in Media, Pennsylvania, Congregation Beth Israel. I was there four years as a student and I continued on four more years after I graduated when I was serving as an adjunct faculty at the rabbinical college and then uh, also running the congregation. And in that congregation, uh, I kind of kept a promise to myself I was not going to do same old, same old being a rabbi in that role. The guy who hired me, the congregation, had an interesting history. They were served by a rabbi who was Orthodox for many years, but they used a conservative door, and they weren't affiliated at all. But their membership had declined considerably. They were in an area of declining demographics in terms of 
Jewish population. And just as they were about to close the doors and the rabbi passed away, the Reconstruction College was established in the late 60s, and they found cheap labor because you can't get a cheaper rabbi than a rabbi in training. So I was like the second student or third student, I think, who started serving them as a rabbi. And when I got hired by the president of the congregation, he said to me, you know, said he says, you know, you're a talented guy. You won't be here very long. We're a small congregation. We're not growing. So as long as you're here, just make it interesting and make it fun. And I thought to me, that was like the best charge. That yeah, that's rabbi good did. advice. Because it felt like I didn't have to do anything that other rabbis did. I could make it like Jewish camp, which I was already doing, camp and youth group. And so right. I used Beth Israel as a laboratory for a lot of experimentation about what could happen in a synagogue. And I started writing up a lot of the experiments as articles in the Reconstruction Magazine, publishing them. And it was on the basis of that, the president of the rabbinical school, whose name was Ira Silverman at the time, he's passed away since, uh, invited me to come and teach his course. And, and that was the beginning of my belief that I could kind of write a new script for how synagogues could function. So that's really where it all started. Fast forward 20 years. I moved to Washington in 1984 to head up the Jewish Community Relations Council, pursue my passion around politics and public policy, very active in issues of Soviet Jewry, Israel, uh, domestic social justice, interfaith relations. And after four years of doing that, I founded a synagogue in Bethesda, Maryland called Adat Shalom, where I was able to actually take a lot of what I had taught at this class at the Reconstruction College and start to implement it now being a bit more mature, a little older, more experienced. And that synagogue just kind of really took off. Great. So what was the experience like writing your first book? So my first book, which you didn't mention in my intro. I didn't. <laughs> so it's a good lead. It. You're a clever interviewer. Uh, what happened was I founded a Dutch Shalom, and I founded it at the same year that I found an organization called Panim, which you did mention. And frankly, it was not my plan to run a synagogue. I had this passion to create a national organization that would focus on issues of leadership, uh, social justice, and Jewish values, which is what Panim is about. But what happened was that a Dutch Shalom, it kind of took off and exceeded my wildest expectations. It just became so much fun. And we were attracting a lot of folks to join, not typical synagogue members. I mean, five years into the synagogue, 80% of the people who joined would say that they had never planned to join any synagogue at all. Mm -hmm. We found a way to tap into a whole generation of seekers, uh, Jews who were looking for some kind of path of greater meaning and didn't think they could necessarily find it in a synagogue. But because of the way we were functioning, the word got out on the street that if you were really you know, interested in, in being a seeker or in pursuing something that was real activist and, and a justice bent, a Dachshund was a place for you. And as the synagogue grew, it became an exciting place. And I wound up staying there for eight years, even though I was literally growing two organizations simultaneously. Because in the same year I founded a Dachshund, 1988, I founded Panium. And after eight years, I couldn't do both anymore. It became impossible. Right. Both were growing up by leaps and bounds. So I stepped down out of the synagogue continuing with Panim, and I decided that what we had created at Dachshund was very unique. And that was what gave birth to my first book, which is entitled Finding a Spiritual Home, How a New Generation of Jews Can Transform the American Synagogue. And in short, what that book did, I knew that just to write a book about one synagogue would not really make the case. I actually profiled four synagogues, a Dachshund being only one of them, that being the Reconstruction Synagogue, but I also profiled the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, which is Orthodox, B'nai Jeshurun in New York, which is conservative, and Bethel Sudbury outside of Boston, which is reform. And I argued in the book that each of those four synagogues, notwithstanding the fact that they were part of four very different movements, had more in common with each other than they had with their sister synagogue in the same movement. Mm -hmm. That's because all four synagogues had found ways to tap into 
a hunger on the part of Jews for something deeply spiritual and very socially relevant. And I think that's something that a lot of American synagogues simply have missed the boat on. And I extracted from the four profiles of the four synagogues a model of the synagogue, which I argued was a new paradigm in American synagogues. And since that book came out in the year 2000, spent kind of the next uh, 15 plus years doing a lot of work nationally, helping synagogues and rabbis as a consultant to essentially understand how they can move to this new paradigm, which creates such vibrant congregation. Keep in mind that you know we're at a moment now in 2017 where the vast majority of American synagogues are losing market share in a very serious way. Right. Synagogues are closing, they're merging. It's the rare synagogue that is in a growth mode. But if you look at the synagogues that are growing, they bear all the features that I talk about in finding a spiritual home. And so That's there's great. been a great interest on the part of rabbis and synagogues to think about some of the stuff I wrote about. And I should say that I was not the only one talking about this. The book came out in a very fortuitous time, the year 2000, just as what I call the synagogue transformation movement was cresting. Synagogue 2000 was a project that was out there. There was a project called STAR, which stood for Synagogues Transformation and Renewal that was set up by three major philanthropists. So in the early 2000s, the synagogue transformation was in the air, and there was a real hunger on the part of synagogues to figure out how to turn the corner and move to a more transformative place. Mm -hmm. So that is the work that really uh, you know, has inspired a lot of my projects, including the Clergy Leadership Incubator, which I run, which is a two-year fellowship for rabbis, in which I help them do two things. One is give them some of the vision of what these new paradigms look like and their characteristics. And secondly, do a deep dive in a organizational theory and process called adaptive leadership, which is essentially equipping rabbis with tools to be change agents in their own synagogue. Now, that's actually not as easy as it may sound, because the work of being a rabbi in a congregation can take not just 40 hours a week, but 50, 60, or 70 hours a mm -hmm. week in terms of leading services, pastoral work, adult education, children, families, you name it. And I know rabbis who've done that work very well, very diligently, very conscientiously for 25, 35, 40 years and retired. And they don't change the model of the synagogue that they served one iota. Mm -hmm. And so part of the work that's got to be done now, because so much has changed in the American marketplace, putting synagogues at risk, I've argued that rabbis have to find the time to actually do the work of change leadership. It's an art form. It's a skill. Seminaries don't teach that skill. And so, by the way, I'm not sure it could even be taught in a seminary, even if a seminary wanted to teach it. How long has that program been going on? We now are in year four of that program. It's a two-year fellowship. So we're coming to the end of our second cohort, and we've just uh, accepted cohort three, which will start this June. So there's 20 rabbis in each cohort from every movement in American Jewish life, equally divided between men and women, divided between all the denominations, every region of the country. And essentially, they use the two years where they essentially workshop taking some innovative idea that they want to implement that has the power to change the culture of their congregation. And okay. using the skills that we teach them, they essentially use those two years to learn how to lead dramatic change in their congregations. Yeah. So, you, but you've been doing this work for a while. So, yeah. what was the impetus for creating this particular new project? So, the reason that this project is only four years old is because until five years ago, I was running Planium, and that organization became quite a large organization. And I didn't have the bandwidth to start a program as intense as CLE, which is the acronym we use for the Clergy Leadership Incubator. So, really, my ability to create CLE was a function of the fact that in 2009, I stepped down the leadership Planium, and it gave me the bandwidth to both create CLE as well as this other project. Can be yeah, absolutely. So this is something that's just been percolating that you wanted to do, and now you have the opportunity to embark on some new projects. Exactly. 
Wonderful. Well, let's jump in. Please tell me how you got to this point in creating this new project. I know that from the article in eJewish Philanthropy, you talk about this coming out of your book, Jewish Mega Trends. So I'd love to hear what led to the creation of that book. What were you seeing? What made you interested in finding out more? And I know that that book started the process of creating this new network. Good, great question. It's good that I was able to first talk about finding a spiritual home because that book explains my Jewish Megatrends book. In Finding a Spiritual Home, I talked about synagogues that were actually doing Jewish differently than other synagogues. But I took a step back and said, you know, the fact of the matter is Jews are different than other religions in America, maybe other religions in the world even, because so much of Jewish life happens outside of the framework of American synagogues. Sometimes for Jews who talk to Christians who just don't get how much Jewish activity is happening in non-religious spaces. Mm-hmm. And so... In Jewish megatrends, I wanted to kind of pull the camera back, if you will, and look at the larger landscape of American Jewish life and the organized Jewish community to say, in the other areas of Jewish life, who is doing stuff differently? And in particular, I asked the question, in what ways was American society changing and what I call the market that the Jewish community is trying to address, meaning next generation Jews? Right. So, so I argued that there's both a dramatic change in the market, the people the Jewish community is serving are different today than they were a generation back, and also the marketplace, meaning America, is a vastly different place than it was in the second half of the 20th century when the Jewish community was in a growth mode, which is not any longer. Mm-hmm. So. So I actually looked at those things, and then uh, we looked at a bunch of sectors where Jewish life was taking place, and I argued the following, that what I call legacy Jewish organizations, and by that I mean four different sectors, the Jewish Federation Movement, American Synagogues, JCCs, and membership organizations like B'nai B'rith, Hadassah, those are the four sectors that make up what has been called the organized Jewish community. Right. And by virtually every measure over the past 20 years, that legacy sector is in steep decline. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't find you know, a successful synagogue or a successful JCC. There are, but those are the exceptions that prove the rule. Overall, all the data indicates that those four institutional orbits are in decline. But I argue that if you look more closely, it would be a mistake to conclude that American Jewish life is in decline. Mm-hmm. You would only come to that conclusion if your focus was exclusively on those legacy sectors. And I argue that there is emerging over the past same 20-year period of time, there are emerging new models of Jewish organizations that are literally the beginning of what I believe is a renaissance of Jewish life. And I started to kind of trace and write about those sectors. And I talked specifically about four sectors, Jewish social justice, spiritual practice, the whole area of eco-sustainability, and Jewish learning groups and independent millennium. At the time that I wrote the book, I had built a list of about 50 organizations that were all organizations that had been created since the year 2000. They were mostly boutique organizations, by which I mean they were single purpose. They weren't trying to do everything. Right. You know, like a synagogue tries to do everything, but these organizations were, were functioning in one niche, one quadrant, one sector, and doing it very, very well. They were passionate about that. And interestingly enough, when compared to the legacy sector, they were attracting the precise next-gen Jews that the legacy sector would love to attract. So Des really wants, yes. <laughs> but are failing to attract. Yeah. So that was the, that's what the book was about. When the book first came out, it was interesting because Barry Shrey, who's a good friend of mine and the head of the Jewish Federation in Boston, there's called the CJP. Barry had an article in the book because I had a, a several communal leaders wrote responses to my essay in the book. Barry sent the book out to all his Federation exec colleagues around the country mm-hmm. saying, you need to read this book. For the first year and a half, two years after the book came out, 
I was in dialogue with a lot of the Federation execs, thinking that maybe if I could convince them with the thesis of my book, I could get them to pay more attention to this emerging phenomenon of what I now call communities of meaning. And I went to a few communities to kind of do some work. It's so ironic. I would go to a community and I would identify a half dozen you know, new organizations that were functioning in the community that were literally off the radar screen of the leadership of the community. And right. we have these conversations, and I would try and say that each has something to learn from the other. And in fact, there is, there's a mutual benefit there in terms of what each can get from the other. But in the end, it was the wrong strategy. It wasn't really working right. Because after I left, there was no one in the federation system who was committed to kind of pursuing this, and I didn't have the time to work in uh, multiple communities. So I took a step back and came up with a different model for it, which is now what has emerged as the Kinesoc Communities of Meaning Network. Essentially, we've done it. We've gotten funding from several foundations, national foundations, that have challenged us to identify, convene, and build a capacity of this new phenomenon that I'm calling emerging Jewish communities of meaning. And it has been really quite remarkable. We're really still kind of early in the project. We're only in our second year right now. But we've had two national consultations. And among the things that's happened is that in the sectors I mentioned earlier, I early on reached out to four organizations that were really sat at the hub of networks in those sectors. So in the social justice realm, we first worked with Ben the Ark, and then we brought in a group called Join for Justice. For the eco-sustainability sector, we turned to Chazon, which is a remarkable work around Jewish environmentalism. For the independent minyanim and Jewish learning quadrants, we turned to Mahon Hadar, which is based in New York. And then for the area of spiritual practice, we turned to the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. And with the help of those four organizational partners, uh, the list that I had, which was about 50, more than doubled in size, and we had a few people gather together to kind of think about this together. And we had that in March of 2016. And then just a few weeks ago, we had our second national consultation with another 50 groups, again, from every part of the country, all those sectors being represented. A couple of interesting things that we've learned, even in this early going. First of all, you need to know that the list has started of 50 organizations has now grown to 300 organizations mm-hmm. just by asking everyone we're talking to, who else do you know doing interesting stuff that's trying to create an organization to have a new approach to Jewish life and living? Right. So already at 300. When people came together in the room, they may have known some other people from their own sector. So a person active social justice organization might know another person doing social justice, even if they were on the other side of the country. But they weren't quite sure what they had in common with the other folks in the room from the other sectors. And in fact, part of the concept is for each of the organizations to think how it is that different approaches to Jewish life might enhance their appeal and their more holistic approach to Judaism going forward. And we talked about it in using five concepts. Chokhmah, which is the wisdom of the Jewish tradition and how it could be used. Kehilah, the whole idea of creating the intentional Jewish communities. We use the term tzedek, groups committed to building a more just and peaceful world. Kiddushah is a term we use to say how you help people find their sacred purpose. And Yitzirah was the creativity theme, how we nurture the creativity of individuals through arts and culture. Now, the fact is, what's so interesting is that you could have a group that's doing social justice, doing really great work on a host of issues, whether it's poverty or human rights or uh, war and peace issues, you name the issue. And they could say, how could our approach be enhanced if we perhaps learn something from another quadrant, like spiritual practice. And by the way, there's work in the field of Musar going on now, Mm -hmm. which actually goes back two centuries, where rabbis actually took Hasidic literature and helped Jews figure out how to both go deeper so that we could do more work in the outside world to help those who are most vulnerable and most in need. Mm -hmm. And so that integration is part of what we're doing in the Kinesan Network to help these organizations kind of see 
that they have some common purpose with one another and that collectively the phenomenon can actually attain more recognition because one of the things that characterize these groups is that they tend to be seriously under-resourced. They tend to be experience some marginalization in wherever they're functioning. They tend not to be seen as mainstream to the Jewish community and that also hampers their ability to be sustainable and to grow. And so there's a certain kind of support that happens when they come together as a collective and say, we're not doing this work alone. And Kinsai is committed to helping the entire quadrant, the whole sector grow a little stronger because we believe that they have some of the answers to how to attract younger Jews who are not attracted to the legacy organizations. Well, that's wonderful. And the way that you've described it, I think was great. What I didn't really necessarily get from the website or understanding of the project is from your research, it, it looks like you're seeing two buckets. You're seeing one bucket of the, as you mentioned, the legacy organizations that try to be everything for everyone and aren't succeeding at it. And these newer emerging organizations that have a very clear vision, very clear mission, very clear pinhole focus as to what they're doing and what they're trying to accomplish and how much more attractive that type of an organization is to our modern culture than this catch-all voice of legacy organization. But the work that you do kind of straddles both of those, right? You're training rabbis on how to turn that catch-all synagogue into something that's a little more laser-focused and attractive to people who want something more or don't necessarily feel the same, just obligated to join a synagogue because that's what you do, but needing to feel a little more identity to the work that that synagogue does in the same way one might feel an identity to Ben the Ark or Avodah or Moisha House or PJ Library because it's so specific as opposed to the synagogue that's in your area or the, you know, North Jersey Federation or the JCC that's Metro West, right? The, just happens to be in your, your neighborhood doesn't necessarily mean that you identify with that legacy organization personally. Correct. Yeah. yeah I think you got it just right. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you is, it sounds like you attempted this with some federations trying to help them see this bigger picture. And I think federations have the handicap, if you will, of large donors, albeit older donors, but large donors that keep them afloat, sometimes regardless of how they actually are able to perform their duties. But do you think that when you talk about these membership-based organizations, these federations, these JCCs, these synagogues, is there hope for them? Is there? Do you feel hopeful that they can take these things that you're learning, these trends, and do the necessary work to be more laser-focused on some kind of service or some kind of meaning in the way that these smaller boutique organizations have really been able to do so well in continuing the legacy of Jewish culture in America, can they make that transformation? Or are we going to see in 20, 30, 40 years, their participation is going to continue to decline while all these boutique organizations just continue to bloom? Yeah, no, uh, it's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that I've done in my career is that I've straddled two worlds. I've worked for the mainstream organized Jewish community, both with it and for it. When I headed up the JCRC in Washington, they put me in the belly of one of the major organizations here in the nation's capital and put me in the network of the national Jewish community where, you know, I, I played in that playpen for a long time and mm-hmm. know the players and, you know, established some of my credentials there. And even in my growth of Panim over 21 years, I built the organization really working closely with federations around the country, boards of Jewish education, day schools, synagogues. So I've spent a good part of my career 
doing the work in the organized community. But I've always been drawn to what I call are the margins. By margins, I mean the margins both politically, my politics tend to be significantly left-center, religiously and spiritually. The fact that I was drawn to the Reconstructionist movement is because even though I was raised in an Orthodox yeshiva and went to a conservative synagogue, I felt that the Reconstructionist movement had a much better understanding about how synagogues have to function. So I've been drawn to the margins there as well. And even culturally, really interested in what's going on on the cultural margins. Because in any social movement, the most interesting things usually happen on the margin. And so part of the work that I do is I'm trying to be a bridge builder because I've not written off the organized community. Mm -hmm. I, I oftentimes have said that I never could have built Panim from scratch into a $3 million organization serving over 20,000 young people over the course of a 21-year career had it not been for the organized community, the way it's structured, mm -hmm. you know, it's really valuable. Now, with that said, I believe not atypical of large organizations, they're not motorboats, they're ocean liners, and they don't turn very quickly when they see a storm coming. Right. Uh, if the storm's coming, you're better off to be in a small boat than in an ocean liner, right? The fact of the matter is the organized community has not responded efficiently, well, or quickly enough to major changes that are happening in the marketplace. And that's why they're losing such so much market share. But I've not written them off. One of the reasons that I'm doing the work in the Kinesi network is that I think that sometimes, you know, there's always a synthesis. I think that if the organized community is the thesis, this emerging network of communities of meaning is the antithesis. And I think down the road, there's a synthesis. It's not like one day every synagogue and federation and Jay-Z is going to close their doors and hand the keys over to these young organizations. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it shouldn't happen. But I think what happens is if there's a growing respect and understanding that this emerging community phenomenon that I'm, I'm mapping right now is not just a fad, it's not just a half a dozen or a dozen organizations, but it's hundreds of organizations around the country, it already will create a change in mentality on the part of the major funders, the major organizations, the federations, the synagogues to say, we have to find a way to integrate this into what we're doing. And mm -hmm. that's really what the long game is all about, how both of these sectors can actually benefit from the other if we can find a way to build some partnerships there. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Timeless Kutuba, who works closely with each couple to ensure full satisfaction. Through their customizable options, Timeless Kutuba is changing the face of Kutubo throughout the world. Your Kutuba is no longer two-dimensional. Before returning to my conversation with Rabbi Sid Schwarz, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode, Abby Saloma from the Schusterman Family Foundation. We discuss the Schusterman Fellowship and the work of the Schusterman Foundation's impact on the greater Jewish community. Here's our clip from our upcoming conversation. So several years ago, we stepped back and we looked at the leadership development space, both in the Jewish sector as well as beyond the Jewish sector. And we looked at just that landscape and what was happening in an effort to address what we see as a talent gap in the sector. So there are a lot of people out there that claim the Jewish sector is broken or the talent is mediocre. And we just do not believe that that is the case. We believe that there is exceptional talent, but we need to do a better job recruiting, developing, and retaining that talent to create what we think of as a virtuous cycle. So exceptional talent creating exceptional organizations, which then in turn recruit exceptional talent. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Abby Saloma in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Rabbi Sid Shores. 
So say I'm a big organization, you can't not see it, right? You can't not see the train coming right at you. When you look at your budget, you look at your numbers, you look at who's coming in the door, who's not coming in the door. These trends are not, they're not quiet, right? I think every legacy Jewish organization sees these things. And I'm sure they're trying to do, you know, strategic plans or research or trying to do surveys. Like what could actually make a difference to help them start turning that wheel of that cruise liner in a different direction because they're they're not Moisha House, right? They're not new and exciting and have this great project. Is it developing those projects? Is it understanding who you serve and what they want? Is it funding these smaller niche projects? Like what is it that you know people who might be listening who are employed by or lead these more legacy organizations, what should they start thinking about if they want to turn that wheel? First, I need to put out a, a certain principle of organizational reality, and then I'll tell you two stories, okay? Great. And I want to use synagogues as an example because it's the world I know the best and where I'm doing my most intensive work. And I think, I think you can extrapolate from there for the other legacy sectors as well. So first of all, the organizational principle, and this is at the base of the work I'm doing in my clergy leadership incubator. Every organization, whether it's a synagogue, a, a business like General Motors, the Red Cross, every organization, its default posture is stasis. In other words, people are hired, including leaders, even when the search committee says to a new CEO, Mr. CEO, we want you to lead us into the future and bring some new (laughs) ideas and change here. And you know what? 99 out of 100 search committees say that to a new CEO. They say it and they don't mean it. They think they mean it. But the second change comes to them in the third month of the new CEO's tenure, and suddenly it's going to change stuff that they've been used to. Suddenly there's pushback. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is most people in positions of authority learn very quickly that the way to ensure your tenure is to manage expectations, not to allow too much change happen. Because if you're a change maker, you actually are inviting disequilibrium and trouble. Now, mm-hmm. there's a lot of theories out there around disruptive innovation is a very infad term now, saying like the only way you create change is to actually disrupt. And People talk about things like Uber and Airbnb as classic examples of disruptive innovation or like the iPhone, right? You know, you take these things that just change an entire marketplace. And of course, you know, in retrospect, we can see, you know, what a great idea Uber is and Airbnb and the iPhone. But early on, there are way more folks who say, this is not going to work. There's just no way that private cars are going to take the place of cabs, right? But could but could Yellow Cab have created Uber or did it take... Uber to create Uber and Yellow Cab could never even have thought of that idea, right? Because their leaders are just people that are coming in and churning what they're doing. And they wouldn't have allowed somebody to come in and say, you know what we should try, right? We should try this new model. And right. Well, that, well, that, that, well, you say proves my point, right? In other yeah. words, because if you're in the big company, you know, you've got stockholders, you've got major market share. So you're not going to change your whole business model because the risk of losing too much of your market share is too great. You don't mm-hmm. do that. It comes from the margins all the time. That's how this stuff happens. So that's the principle I want to put out. Not two stories because the question you asked is a good one, and that is to say, what can legacy organizations do? So here are two good examples. They both come out of the work I'm doing with Klee. So in my last cohort of rabbis, I had two synagogues. Both happen to be conservative, but it doesn't have to be conservative synagogues. That did very interesting things. A lot of synagogues moved out of the 
urban areas in the 70s when cities were on the decline. You, know, you had what was called then urban decay. And a lot of synagogues, you know, Jews were moving to the suburbs, synagogues followed them. In some cases, the city has moved first and the Jews followed, but it usually was the Jews first. And the synagogues closed their urban campuses and they went out to the suburbs. And so through the 80s and 90s, and even earlier, even the 70s, you had these gigantic synagogues being built in the suburbs that were affluent middle class areas where Jews were moving. Okay? Now, lo and behold, we're now in the year 2017. And what's happened over the past 20 years? Suddenly, there's urban renewal everywhere. Okay, mm-hmm. cities are where it's happening. And you know, I visit a lot of synagogues around the country and it never fails. I get invited to come and speak or do a scholar and residence weekend at a synagogue. And I hear the leadership, the rabbis and the board, the president saying, this building is an albatross. It's going to kill us because we are now half the size or only 80% of the size or worse that we were 25 years ago. We've got this gigantic mortgage. The building is almost never full. We've got all this real estate and all the actions happening elsewhere, like in, in the city. So I had two synagogues where the rabbis who were in my CLE program were actually working on seeding a satellite community in the very neighborhood that the synagogues abandoned 40 years ago. Right. And what did they find back there? They found the children of the members, not the actual children, but the next generation. Mm-hmm. So the people in the suburbs are people who are aging boomers. They're people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And the synagogues are aging and graying in the suburbs. But go back into the urban area and their kids and their grandchildren are coming out of college or coming out of grad school, coming out of law school, and they're moving into the cities, getting condos, whatever else. And they're looking for places to kind of reinvent Jewish life. So you have this phenomenon of older synagogues realizing that the future is not in the suburbs or not where they thought it was 40 years ago, but now back in the cities. And they're creating thriving young communities in the inner city. Now, what the future relationship is between that new satellite congregation and the the mothership, so to speak, there are probably a dozen variations on that, and I can't predict. It'll probably be different in each community. And that's not an easy thing to navigate, but the promise is there about, you know, if you want to find out where your future is. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B. Uh, now, this hasn't been done yet, but I'm going to put it out there. And because I know you have millions of listeners, uh, <laughs> hopefully the idea will spread like wildfire. Good. I, I, I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Michelle. A few years ago, United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, which is the umbrella the conservative movement had their centennial convention in Baltimore. I was invited to do a panel on the future of the American synagogue, which is kind of my expertise. At the end of the presentation, there was a lot of Q&A, and somebody asked a question, you know, Rabbi Sid, give us one idea. You know, like most of us here are leaders in synagogues that, as you describe, are losing membership. Some are closing, some are merging. We're losing market share. Give us one idea. So literally on the fly, I threw out an idea, which I could have lived to regret, but actually the more <laughs> I thought about it, the more I thought, not a bad idea. I wrote it up as an article and I've been talking about it ever since the past Great. year and trying to get people to adopt it. I said, here's one proposal for every synagogue in America. Why don't you take 2% of your budget, okay? Not a big number, 2% of your budget, set it aside and create a fund for innovation that you're ready to give out many grants and you can decide on the amount. I mean, if you have a really big budget, the grants could be 5000 or 10000 If you're a smaller congregation, a smaller budget, maybe the grants are even less than that. It doesn't really matter. You start marketing this idea and you say that the grants are available to any Jew who's got a unique idea about how to reinvent Jewish life and Jewish living. Not any Jew who's a member of the congregation, but any Jew at all. No, that's the whole point. Because one of the failures of American synagogues is that they have become closed country clubs 
Mm-hmm. They only serve their members. And I think one of the directions of the future is that for synagogues see themselves as hubs of Jewish life in their respective zone of influence, okay? Right. And so that's part of the point. Because look, the fact of the matter is, if you're a synagogue in the suburbs and you put this fund out, what if in the urban area that's 15 miles away from you, there's a young Jewish 20-something who's got this great idea, I want that person to be able to get that grant. Right. Now, the only provision is in getting that grant is that the young upstart idea gets the grant. When they roll it out, it needs to take place and be available to the people in the synagogue and right. preferably actually happening in the synagogue. And so suddenly, a synagogue that's aging and graying and, and losing membership has new ideas coming from young people who are getting these grants and doing it in their space. That's where you start having kind of the synergy between an O-line synagogue that's got a building, which is no small thing. Because a lot of these small groups that happen by young people in the city, they can't find a place. They don't have the money to rent a place. And then, you know, they're doing stuff in people's living rooms. When they outgrow the living room, they've got a problem. So, you know, this is just a way for a synagogue to think differently about what his mandate is, you know. Now, I have to say that I don't have people knocking down my door to kind of adopt the project. But I think it's an idea that's worth trying. It changes the mentality of a synagogue from simply serving their members and doing the same thing they've been doing for 50 years to say, why can't we seed innovation? Because if we care about the future of Jewish life, it may not look like what we've been doing Judaism for 50 years here. Well, that's a fantastic idea and everyone should do it. (laughs) I think it's, you know, I've talked about before in the podcast, your budget is a reflection of your values. And if you need to be innovating, then being able to be open to innovation and allocating that in your budget, I think that would bring a lot of wonderful life and excitement to a synagogue that might be struggling. So I have a couple more questions for you. The first being, who's your protege? Who are you bringing into the fold of your work and teaching? Well, I'm not sure I can say is there a protege. I think what I would like to say is that I feel fortunate that over the course of my career that I've mentored dozens and dozens of younger folk, some are rabbis, but many of them are not, who worked with me at Panim and worked with me at Adat Shalom and been in my CLE cohorts and are now coming into the Knesset Network. And I feel quite privileged. I mean, I spend more and more time with every passing year spending time in mentoring mm-hmm. because I think that's an obligation. I think that's really important. We had a fellowship program at Panim called Panim El Panim, which had over the course of 20 years some 20,000 kids came through the program, which was a unique integration of Jewish learning, Jewish values, and social responsibility. So you got all those alumni out there. It's rare that a, probably once a month at least, I am somewhere speaking or in a meeting or a conference or whatever else, and someone says to me, oh, I was a Panim alum. And they were kind of remembered as kind of a turning point experience in their lives. It's kind of cute because I was at a uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Atlanta for the Jewish Funders Network, and I started chatting to a guy who now runs a big foundation out of Pittsburgh. He says to me, he was a Panim alum. So at one point, you know, he was like a, you know, a pitcher. He was like a, you know, 11th grader on a program that I was running, and right. now he's in a position to kind of give away millions of dollars. So, but that's the way it is. I mean, yeah. these young people go through the program. And I was saying that I had a Panim Fellowship program, which was young people coming out of college, spent a year on my staff as fellows. They were the ones who got the, the most intensive exposure to kind of my thinking, my methodology around, you know, how we create an integrated Jewish identity for American Jews. And I'm very close to those fellows. We have about 60 of the fellows overall over my tenure who went through the program. And some of them have moved on to do amazing things in the Jewish world. The 20 rabbis who are in my program, I'm in a regular mentoring relationship with them. And I think a lot of them have the promise to do some amazing things in the future. So mm-hmm. so I feel good about the fact that as my career has you know, moved forward, uh, that I've been giving more and more time to essentially preparing and giving ideas over to 
the next generation who hopefully will pick up the baton and run with it. That's great. And so thinking about our diversity of our audience, Jewish professionals, rabbis, lay leaders, what's some advice that you might have for them in their work, whether they're working for these more niche emerging organizations or from the legacy organizations, or they're thinking about their next move or wanting to stay where they are? What advice do you have for our listeners? Well, look, the first thing I would say is following, and, and usually this is when I give talks based on my Jewish Megatrends book, because so much of what I say is a critique of where the organized Jewish community is. I go to great pains to start out by saying that if you're an American Jew, you need to feel so fortunate that there exists something called the organized Jewish community. It is mm-hmm. quite amazing. Uh, I've done a lot of interfaith work, and I have to tell you that only when you sit down with non-Jews do you realize how precious the community we created is, because every other subcommunity in America is envious of what the Jewish community has created. Mm-hmm. And I think Jews are very hard on themselves, and I think before I give advice, I first want to put this out there to say that we are a wealthy community, affluent. We are a generous community, more than most communities, and we have created amazing institutions and structures that serve a whole range of needs from cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And I think that there are too many Jews who don't just appreciate that fact. I want to start there, okay? Number two, it is very easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, a sideline critic, and, you know, stuff that I've written can be seen as, you know, a critique of the way the community is running the show, for sure. But I'll give you a very personal example. My son graduated college and got a master's degree in organizational work and community development, and he worked for two nonprofits, not Jewish. First, a small nonprofit that was working with homeless children. Then he went to a large nonprofit that was working on educational reform on a national level. In the first place, the budget was quite small. In the second place, you know, there were millions of dollars being thrown around. But in both places, he found the administration and the direction and the mission very fuzzy, very poorly run, poorly administered. And so we had a little father-son conversation. He's thinking about the next step of the career, his career. And I said, you should just take a look at the Jewish community as a possibility, not to do it for me. But I said, having spent a lot of time in the nonprofit sector, I got to tell you, I think the Jewish community actually is a step ahead of a lot of the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. And he sat down with our local federation executive in Washington, Steve Rackett, who's a great guy. And it's always about the leadership. And Steve kind of gave him a list of some of the top federations in America that had really good execs. And my son interviewed about six of them and took a job in Pittsburgh. And it's night and day. He's really, really happy. And he's happy because, not because he's working in the Jewish community. You know, I can say that as his father, I'm pleased with that. But this is not about him pleasing his dad. I was not put in that guilt trip on him at all. I just don't mm-hmm. believe in doing that. But as a professional who wanted to work in a place where you're well mentored, where you're well supervised, where the organization has clarity of mission, at the end of the day, when you go home, you feel you've accomplished something. He didn't have that experience in the first two workplaces that he had, and he feels he has that now working for a Jewish Federation. That is something mm-hmm. to take note of. Absolutely. It may be anecdotal. It's only one story. But I would argue that actually it's part of a larger phenomenon. So there's good stuff out there. I guess the third thing I would say in terms of advice for people who are in the Jewish world is that don't be scared to play out the motto of Apple, like think different, right? I've made my entire career out of thinking differently. I say only half facetiously, but it's true. I haven't applied for a job since 1984. Right. Now, that's not for everybody, right? Yeah, I've created my own jobs because, frankly, the Jewish community has the affluence where if you have a great idea and you work hard, you can create something 
quite unique and, get, right. and make it work. Now, not everyone's cut out to do that. I understand that, okay? Maybe a, a little bit of a stretch here. But well, I mean, I'm here it. talking to you on the podcast and I have zero dollars. <laughs> you know, you can make it happen. I think there's, and there's resources and mentors out there support you in, in any of those ideas you might have. So I don't think it's as much of a stretch as you might think. I think it's the opportunity and, and people feeling like they're allowed to take this thing in their mind and make it a reality. Yeah. Not only is there affluence in the community, but I, I think the other thing that we totally take for granted is that because we come from a community that's highly educated and deeply networked, that network is a tremendous step forward. Because I have done a fair amount of work in the inner city, one of the greatest advantages of coming from a community of color which doesn't have the affluence or the network, is that the fact that Jews have made so much progress, not because we're smarter than everyone else, but because we have a network that you take advantage of. I, mean, I mm-hmm. can't tell you how many of my kids' friends have gotten their first or second job by networking with the parents of their friends, right? And it's they get an know. opportunity. <laughs> and and that's know. how it works. And, yeah. and if you're growing up in the inner city and you're Hispanic or you're African-American, you know, you look at your friends' parents, and they don't have the same kind of posts in positions, whether in the corporate sector or the nonprofit world or in government, they just don't have that network. So there's an advantage that you have as being Jewish. Now, I say this with some amount of guilt because I think that we desperately need to narrow the gap between the haves and have-nots in America. We're going in the wrong direction on that right now in a serious way. But to the extent that you ask me a question, what advice would you give to young Jews who want to kind of move forward? Say, well, think different, think boldly, work your tail off, and have the confidence in your own vision that you can move that forward and create a new reality out there. That's fantastic. And to be honest, I'm just waiting for your next leadership incubators for membership-based organizations and federations and JCCs, the way that you're doing work in synagogues and developing those leaders who think that way. And as much as it sounds like you tried to do with federation executives, maybe they're just not there yet. But I think there's a bit of a hunger and an acknowledgement out there at the direction that things are going, and especially with something like your new network, highlighting that, right? Highlighting the importance and the fact that these organizations are being really successful in how they're doing what they're doing and to not figure out how to capitalize on that. Well, not even just capitalize, but how to bring that into the fold of the work that you're doing. You're just going to continue on the trajectory of fading away. So tell me when you start those incubators (laughs) and I'll spread the word because I think that, you know, these other legacy organizations could really benefit from thinking in that same way that you're allowing these rabbis to in, in your leadership incubator. Well, thank you for saying that, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the program tonight. I really appreciate our conversation and best of luck with your new network. And I'm sure it'll just continue to grow exponentially as more people follow their passions and and create the organizations they want to see in the Jewish community. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Good luck. One of the reasons I wanted to bring Sid on the program, for lack of a better word, positioned himself one of our Jewish community's grandfathers. A person who has spent many years examining the Jewish community and has such many lives. In our conversation, I brought up the question of succession, of who is going to be there to continue his work. Who is he teaching the way that he looks at the world so that they can continue his work for many, many years to come? And when I look into our fields, I wonder, who are our next generation of researchers, of book writers? Who's gathering the information, making the insights, and using that to guide their work? At each stage of Sid's career, he looked for an issue, he researched it, he wrote a book, and then he took that book and turned it into action. 
And that's what he's doing this very day with his new project. Sid saw the trends that I've been exploring through my conversations many years ago and decided to take action on what he saw. This splitting between boutique organizations, niche-focused and small, but flourishing in the way that they engage participants, raise dollars, and set the course for the coming years. And contrasting that with our larger legacy organizations who are currently soul-searching for their purpose in the changing landscape. He responded to the concept that these boutique organizations would not exist were it not for these larger legacy organizations. But his response to seeing these new iterations of Jewish life was to find a way to connect them to one another, to connect the professionals doing the work outside of that system and what tools and information they could gain from one another. Regardless of where you find yourself, gather your holy chutzpah, see what's not there, and get to work creating it. You can read Sid's full bio on our website and read more about the Kenisa Network at kenisa.org. I'd again like to thank our podcast sponsor, Timeless Ketuba. You can listen to my conversation with David Master on our website and explore their wonderful Ketuba sculptures at timelessketuba.com. I hope you are enjoying your Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.